years. Visit kpfa.org for more information on 60 Years, 60 Voices. And to become a member, join KPFA now at kpfa.org. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley and KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. Stay tuned for a cover-to-cover open book. I'm your host, Dina Serrano. Thank you all who contributed so generously last month to KPFA. AK Press is about to release a book so exciting and compelling that I was reading much of it on the computer screen. The book is Arm the Spirit, A Woman's Journey Underground and Back by Diana Block. It's hard to believe it's her first book, as it's so moving and skillfully written, jumping suspensefully from the present to the thrilling and exciting flashbacks without skipping a beat. Arm the Spirit tells the story of a woman's journey underground and back. In June 1985, Diana Block and her two-week-old son and five companions, all of them active in the struggle for Puerto Rican independence, fled Los Angeles after finding a surveillance device in their car. Facing the possibility of arrest because of her militant activities, Diana spent the next decade living underground on the run from the FBI, raising two children and juggling security, solidarity, and motherhood in a perfect demonstration that the personal is political. And it's relayed with emotional depth and poetic style. Arm the Spirit brings a woman's perspective to a subject typically dominated by heroic male discourse. The book paints a vivid, complex picture of underground life and its many challenges. What it's like to raise children who don't know their mother's real name and birthday. How does it feel to see your own history distorted on an episode of America's Most Wanted? Which aspects of underground life are terrifying? Which are stultifying? And which ultimately strengthen the spirit and the will to resist? It's a captivating tale of struggle and solidarity told from the inside. And I have in the studio today Diana Block to talk to us about her book, Read us excerpts and let us hear about her upcoming book tour. Welcome, Diana Block, to Open Book. Thank you so much, Nina, for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm so glad because I've been enjoying it and I know very soon it's going to be able to be read by anybody in real paper, right? Yes, in real book form in the next um, few days. It's uh, too bad you didn't have it before the program, but you'll have it within a couple of days, I promise. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I wonder if you could start by reading us a little bit from the opening, The Escape. Yeah, okay, I um, certainly. And then we can, I can explain a little bit of the context afterwards. Okay. In hindsight, many dreams seem prophetic. In my sleep, 
Just before Claude woke me, our backyard was exploding, our carefully planted garden disintegrating into shards of burnt leaves and incinerated flowers. So when Claude shook me out of that nightmare into another, my heart was already racing. It took me a few minutes to register the palm-sized square box with wires extending from its side, which Claude held in one hand. The index finger of his other hand was placed in warning over his mouth. Almost inaudibly, he whispered that he had just found this ugly object while trying to fix the car radio of our green Toyota. The object was a bug, a surveillance device for tracking movement. Dazed but awake now, I looked over on the floor at the right side of my bed. Our two-week-old son, Tony, was sleeping calmly in the handcrafted cradle we had found at a garage sale a month before. He had finally fallen into a deep sleep after a night of restless feedings. Now, as my mind began to assimilate our transformed situation, I longed to return to the questions about the best breastfeeding schedule that Claude and I had been arguing about in the middle of the night instead of dealing with the looming issue before us. What were we going to do now that the FBI had found us? While we didn't know how they had found us, a bug in our car could only mean one thing. The FBI had planted a tracking mechanism because they knew who we really were and were watching us to gather more information before arresting us. They weren't interested in the comings and goings of Lynn Foster, the hospital clerk, or Ed James, the short-order cook, the underground personas we had been carefully cultivating for some time. They wanted information on Diana Block, Claude Marks, and the four other people we were working with in clandestinity, plus anyone else they could ensnare. Fear was rising inside of me, but another glance over at Tony helped click my mental discipline into place. I could not allow myself to dwell on the worst-case scenario. We had to figure out what to do. We knew that our houses were likely to be bugged with other listening devices and watching contraptions, making it impossible to talk freely inside. Within an hour, Claude and I had contact contacted our four companions and gathered for a faux picnic in our local Van Nuys Park. We wanted to act as normal as possible to behave as if we had found nothing, to buy ourselves time so that even an observant FBI agent would not realize that we had discovered their bug. Instead, they would think we were merely continuing the strange daily routines we used to secure our clandestine lives. We constantly met in parks, in coffee shops, or in malls. We spoke in measured voices. We rarely used our home phones, and when we did, it was only to call the movie theater or library, never to communicate with each other. We watched for cars that were watching us, or at least we tried to. While we aspired to discipline technique, in reality, we were novices in clandestine met methodology and were easily worn out by the constant pressure of our sometimes arbitrary rules. That June morning, it seemed like all of our past shadowy efforts had been a poor dress rehearsal for this, the real thing. It was June 11, 1985, in Los Angeles's San Fernando Valley, and at 10 a.m. the heat was already building and the park with its brownish grass and skimpy sprinklers was filling with kids. The seven of us, 
myself, Claude, Donna, Jody, Karen, Rob, and Tony spread out our pretend, hastily compiled picnic on a blanket and took turns walking and jiggling Tony to keep him content while we all tried to stave off panic and concentrate on the decisions at hand. As I looked around, I absurdly noted how each one of us was gravitating towards his or her typical comfort food. Claude had cornered the bag of tortilla chips. Jody was chomping the raw vegetables. Rob had cut off a huge hunk of Gouda cheese. Donna was nibbling a chocolate bar. Karen hugged the box of Triscuits. And I was gobbling cherries. These people had been my close friends and political comrades for over ten years. We had already been in many tough political situations together. But most of those years we had worked together as public activists. We had never faced the type of cataclysmic decision that was now ominously staring us in the face. Still, the consistency of their food preferences reassured me. I knew them all well enough to trust their instincts beyond food. Usually we debated issues and decisions at great length. We each had our own different ways of coming at problems, and it could take hours before we could hammer out a common approach to a challenge. This time there was little argument. We all agreed that the only possible solution was to leave as rapidly as possible with as much normalcy as we could muster. Over the past couple of years, other clandestine groups had been caught because they downplayed possible evidence of entrapment or didn't act decisively enough once they understood they were compromised. We could not make the same mistakes. Our only hope lay in getting away. Our consensus on this necessity propelled us forward, even though it seemed almost impossible that we could be successful. Although we had never rehearsed a sudden departure like this, we quickly figured out the basics of a getaway plan. The division of our small stash of money, kept expressly for a situation such as this, and the framework for communication via public payphones that could take us through the next two weeks without the need for further collective discussion. Returning to our house, I put Tony down in his carved cradle and began the task of weaving through our accumulated papers in order to burn or dump what we didn't absolutely need to take with us. I wanted to be systematic and reasoned in this process, but my mind kept fixating on scenes of catastrophic capture. Wow. So, how did you want to prepare us to understand this? Well, um, you know, I don't want to give away that much of the book. Um, Clearly, uh, this is a a story about... um, uh, what, this this situation, what the context for it was, and then what proceeded to happen in the next uh, ten years when we were um, forced to live as uh, fugitives and underground. Um, I think the the this start to the book lays sets the framework, and then what I tried to do is I then develop all the background for why um, we actually were in that situation, what our political and personal motivations were for going underground, and, um, you know, set that in the history of the 60s and 70s, which a lot of which I don't think many readers are familiar with. Would you like to read us something that illustrates that? 
Um, or <laughs> well, pick from what you've prepared to read. Prepared to read. Okay. Um, I actually, you know, have have thought that uh, what might interest your listeners the most are um, some of the different a- episodes where which describe m- our reactions to um, major major uh, danger that we faced and uh, major problems. So um, I think the next thing that I was thinking of reading was actually how we felt when we first heard about the show America's Most Wanted. And that was uh, a number of years after we actually escaped from L.A. It was um, in 1987 when we were act- we had left L.A. We went for a while to Minneapolis, and then we finally ended up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a place where none of us had ever been. Um, and shortly after we arrived in Pittsburgh, we, uh, we saw the trailer one night for this, uh, show. And, um, this section tells how we felt about that. We saw the trailer one night as we were watching the TV after Tony had gone to bed. You can help capture America's most wanted. Viewers were encouraged to tune in on Saturday nights at 9 p.m. to be part of a groundbreaking new show designed to track down the country's most notorious fugitives. I looked over at Claude and I could see from the tension tracks creasing his face that for him, like me, our lives were once again spinning out of control. Next day, in the local paper's TV section, we read how Fox TV had contacted John Walsh, a leader in the victims' rights movement, since his son's abduction and murder a few years before, and he was to host this new, innovative reality show. The show would feature reenactments of brutal crimes and profiles of known fugitives with the goal of enlisting national audience support in their capture. FBI lists and post office pictures of us were one thing, but now we were facing the inevitability that our names, our faces, our pictures, and whatever sensationalized facsimile of our story the FBI wanted to wanted to invent would be on primetime TV, potentially co-opting neighbors, landlords, co-workers, and acquaintances into a process of spying, identification, and notification of the police. What should we do? What could we do? We anxiously awaited the premiere of the show. The ads in the paper indicated that the first fugitives featured would be a serial rapist, a murderer, and a child molester. We didn't think that the FBI could twist our story into any of those categories, but maybe the advertisements were purposely misleading and we would appear in place of one of the other infamous fugitives. On the other hand, it seemed likely that Fox would want to initiate the series with the most socially abhorrent characters in order to gain sympathy for this new media endeavor and avoid any questions about its larger political agenda. That first Saturday, we were riveted to our TVs, and what we saw was deeply disturbing, even though we ourselves were not mentioned. 
introduced by lurid and insinuating music, we watched in horror as the featured rapist lured women into his den and with the utmost callous pleasure proceeded to violate them. After the first reenactment, host John Walsh appeared, commenting in a fatherly tone about the crime we had just witnessed, displaying mugshots of the alleged perpetrator and repeatedly beaming the anonymous hotline number that viewers could call if they thought they knew something, anything that could lead to the fugitive. You don't have to be certain, Walsh reassured would-be tipsters. Anything you have noticed out of the ordinary might help. Then more music and on to the next scenario where similar hapless victims were stalked and murdered in cold blood before our unbelieving eyes. America's Most Wanted was sucking its viewers into a voyeuristic world of sex and violence while bestowing upon them the mantle of superhero in the righteous battle against the scourge of criminals who were taking over America. The crime reenactments carry the disclaimer of fiction, but they were presented as factual and true, effectively dispensing with the concept of innocent until proven guilty. If the fugitive were caught, it was difficult to imagine how a jury could objectively weigh the true facts if they had been first exposed to America's most wanted, wanted's accusatory narrative. We had no doubt that sooner or later our story would be featured on the show. Over the next couple of months, we argued and debated how we could best respond to the inevitable airing of our story. Should we be prepared to leave our current homes? Should Donna and Claude find jobs where only a couple of people could see them on a day-to-day -day basis? What made the situation even worse was that we had no idea what types of pictures and other identifying material the FBI actually had on us. After all the debates, we decided that our best defense remained our normalcy. How we presented ourselves in the world with neighbors, co-workers, and friends contested the terrorist stereotype. And as we continued to build relationships, we hoped that our friends would never make the leap between us and the scary wanted fugitives on the TV screen. Thank you. You've just heard Donna Block reading from her new book, Arm the Spirit, A Woman's Journey Underground and Back, which is soon to be released by AK Press. Well, I think that brings us to what was the crime well, um, I would not call it a crime. I don't think there really was a crime per se. Uh, there was uh, a, an incident which, um, where Donna and Claude uh, went to New Orleans and in a, in a case which was really set up by the FBI totally from start to finish, they were sold um, phony explosives that they then um, uh, transported and uh, stored in a storage place. Um, you know, they were acting in solidarity with the Puerto Rican independence movement. That was the framework. And we were all committed to, um, you know, to solidarity with that movement at that point. But um, w really, this particular incident was a setup and um you know the whole the entire book tries to explain what the what the history of 
colonialism was for Puerto Rico, why the Puerto Rican people were engaged in the struggle for independence, which was at a, as at one of its many high points in the 70s and the 80s, and then where we fit into that. It's not um, uh, something that is that familiar to many people. Uh, people are more familiar with other groups such as the Weather Underground that became active in the 60s and were you know, responding to the Vietnam War and the Panthers. Our situation was a little different. We grew out of the legacy of the Weather Underground, but we were um, a number of years later and we were acting in solidarity with different forces. So um, I really hope that this gives you enough of a sense so that your interest is... Um, provoked and that you and your listeners will want to find out more about why all the complicated reasons why we found ourselves underground and why this incident occurred. Are you going to be giving any readings? Yes, and I would really um, uh, encourage everyone who's listening to come to at least one of them in the Bay Area. Um, the first one is going to be a wonderful book launch party on uh, Sunday, March 22nd from 3 to 5 at the Women's Building in San Francisco, 3543 18th Street. Um, so that's number one. And by the way, you can find all of the information about all my upcoming readings on my website, which is um, www.armthespirit.com. And I'll repeat that again at the end. So that's one. Um, then I'm having a reading at City Lights Bookstore, which is on Thursday, March 26th at 7 p.m. Um, and uh, you can find the address for City Lights on the web. It's at, at, in the middle of North Beach. I think most people in this area know City Lights. The, and April 9th, on Thursday, April 9th, I'm having a reading at a, another, a new radical bookstore in San Francisco called Babylon Falling, which is a really exciting development at the time when many indie bookstores are going out of business. This is a new bookstore, and that's on Bush Street. And that will be at 6 p.m. on Thursday, April 9th. And then finally, on Thursday, April 30th, I'll be reading at Modern Times. So, and that's on Valencia and 20th Street in San Francisco. So, I hope, uh, you know, check the web for details. Please come to the book launch party. That is really going to be, you know, there'll Tell be food. Tell us the date again. Yes, Sunday, March 22nd from 3 to 5 p.m. I think it will really be wonderful because um, I'm expecting my family, my extended community, friends, and newly found friends to be there. And I think it will be a wonderful occasion for us to s celebrate all together because I really, you know, I see this book as a product of our real collective resistance over many decades. And um, that's the way I want to celebrate it. Well, it, it is true that not only are yourselves free, but many of the Puerto Rican independence uh, political prisoners have been freed. Right, and that is also covered in the book. I'm really glad you mentioned that. In 1999, 11 of the Puerto Rican political prisoners were um, granted the commutation of their sentence by President Clinton, and um, that was an amazing moment in history. 
And even though um, it came through a presidential commutation, it was a result really of the protracted, persistent struggle of the Puerto Rican movement for their freedom, a struggle that involved the demonstrations of hundreds of thousands of people across Puerto Rico and hard, persevering work on the part of the movement. So um, it was a wonderful moment, a wonderful victory that um, I think many people are not aware of, and it can yield lessons, incredible political lessons for people who, who um, know, who look into it and really understand how the movement was able to win the release of its prisoners. Although I do want to just say that there are still uh, several Puerto Rican political prisoners, Juan Oscar Lopez Rivera, um, Carlos Alberto Torres, they are still in prison. And um, the new one, um, Gonzalez Avelino Claudio, these people we also have to remember because it seems like every time um, something positive happens that the movement pushes the state to do, they respond by um, pushing back and um, increasing the repression against the movement. And, um, you know, that's part of, I think, the dialectic in, in in the struggle for liberation that is also something that I really try and get at in the book. Well, I wonder if in closing you might read us another section from this book, which is Arm the Spirit. Right. Yes, I would love to do that. I just want to say one um, small thing about the title because I, I, I really want to give a shout out to one of the people who is a current political prisoner who was one of the inspirations for the title. Um, the title Arm the Spirit was has many origins, but one of them was a newsletter that was done by prisoners at San Quentin, initiated by um, political prisoner Jaleel Muntakim, who is now, unfortunately, one of the San Francisco Eight. I just really wanted to sh- give a shout out to him. I hope he can listen to this show and know that um, one of the inspirations for the title of this book was his newsletter. Just to close, I would like to just read a section about when we come back and um, Claude um, ends up in prison, Claude, my partner. Um, So here we are, the first visit when he's in prison in Oregon and Sheridan. We tore out of the car and breathlessly presented ourselves to the guards at the front desk, only to be told that we were five minutes past the time when visitors could be processed. No amount of reasoning or impassioned explaining that we had come over 700 miles could budge the staff. They had heard despondent crying from children hundreds of times before. It meant nothing to them. As we were to learn time and time again, the rules were meant to discipline visitors as well as prisoners into submission. When we realized that we were getting nowhere with the guards, Karen and I hurried to get the kids off the grounds. The next morning we were among the first in line when the processing began. Even so, the procedure was long and tedious. Luckily, the line was filled with children of all ages, and while Tony preferred to observe every detail of the absurd routine, Layla began to play a clever version of stand still, hide and seek with the other kids, which allowed them to play without losing their place in line. She's already began to learn the rules of this place, I thought, ruefully. 
You have just heard Diana Block reading from her book, Arm the Spirit, A Woman's Journey Underground and Back, published by AK Press. And you can learn more about it at www.armthespirit.com. Thank you so much, Diana. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Lewis here, letting you know about Tavis Smiley speaking. That's right, television personality and righteous political commentator Tavis Smiley will be at First Congregational Church of Oakland on Tuesday evening, March 10th at 6.30 p.m. He'll discuss his new book, Accountable, Making America as Good as Its Promise, and I'll be there with him and hope you will be too. The church is located at 2501 Harrison Street at 27th in Oakland. There's free parking and wheelchair access. Tickets for the KPFA benefit, co-sponsored by United Healthcare, are $15 at the door and only $12 online at kpfa.org or at supporting bookstores. Visit kpfa.org for more information on Tavis Smiley. And you're tuned to 94.1 KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KSCF in Fresno, KPFA.org. From Pacifica Station, KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Free Speech Radio News. It's Friday, the 6th of March, 2009. Unemployment rates jumped to a 25-year high, and blacks and Latinos are hit the hardest. The California Supreme Court hears arguments on Prop 8, which bans